play and you sing the perfect way for evening to begin and I won't sit down hey kids this is Rish Outfield this is another episode of the Rish Outcast I'm actually starting uh, a minute before when I usually start walking out the door closing the door getting in the car Usually it's after I've started the engine, or sometimes right before I start the engine, I start the recording. Um, I thought I'd switch it up because you deserve it. Funny thing is I'm holding the... Oh wow, it must have rained. I guess it rained last night. Oh, let's see. What am I presenting today? Give me just a second, let me think. It's a story about the keys, right? Okay, let me stick this microphone on again. As soon as I sat down, it fell, which is no fun. Usually the uh, falling of the uh, microphone is accompanied by the traditional profanity. But not today, today I'm all right. Okay, starting up the engine. Altimeter, check. Flaps, check. Blaring radio, check. Okay, so. Today I'm presenting a story called The Key Collector. And this has to be the most recent story I've ever done on The Rich Outcast. It is short. Uh, it is from 2014. There was a period there uh, early in the year when I got a lot of writing done. I, I'm still getting a lot of writing done when I'm recording this. I'm doing all right this year. This probably is my most um, fruitful year as far as writing goes when I'm not in school back in college when I was forced to write for classes and stuff I, I may have accomplished a little bit more but you know it's hard to say because there were many classes you can't just focus on writing but uh, it, at the beginning of the of 2014 I remember I was looking for inspiration looking for prompts contests that sort of thing and I entered a couple of different contests, lost all of them, of course. Uh, but you know what? That's fine. I, I, I ran, oh, I don't think I ran it yet. At some point, I'm going to run a story called Creature Feature. And it's the fourth story I've done for the same contest. I've done one every single year. And I've lost every single one. But I'm kind of okay with that because if you ever win the contest, then you're out of the running. You're no longer allowed to participate in the contest. And so uh, that sort of thing, you know, it's a mixed blessing, if you will, or a blessing in disguise or a silver lining, or it's some kind of cliched, like set of vaguely religious metaphor is what it is. Oh, okay, so The Key Collector is a story that I wrote for this contest where they gave us a photo and these are, I, these are my favorite writing contests, frankly. Uh, they gave us a photo, and it was a picture of a bank of hotel keys. You know, just about, let's say, 50 of them or 40 of them or something like that. And, you know, each key has a number and all that and a peg that it's on. And their prompt was, you know, you got to write a story, a short story. You know, I think it was like maximum of 3,000 words or something like that uh, about this image. But the only rule is the, what you're looking at are not hotel keys. And so if it had been hotel keys, I probably would have written 
I don't know, it might have been like a haunted house story where there's a haunted hotel room um, or a murder mystery, you know, there's a dead body found in a... Or, I don't know, I have no idea what I would have done because I was inspired by the photograph, but, but knowing from the second I saw the photograph that they're not hotel keys. And so I came up with the story I called The Key Collector, which uh, I'm presenting to you right now, and I will meet you on the flip side. Enjoy! The Key Collector by Rish Outfield Four, two, two. Mason sighed. He always sighed when the voices told him which number was next. You would think the man would become inured, become hard, after killing so many. But over the last eleven years and so, so many victims. It still felt like a dreadful trial. He no longer hunched in guilt or cried himself to sleep as he had the first few times. But he did long to be free, long to be able to rest. When finished, maybe he'd turn himself into the police. Maybe he'd drink himself to death. Maybe he'd just step off a bridge. He didn't know. But he did know the end was in sight. Of the hundred slots on the keyholder, there were maybe a dozen still empty. He'd picked up the holder years ago, when the Paradise Hotel had sold off some of their furnishings, transitioning to digital keys. He hadn't known why he purchased it, why he hung it in his little one-car garage, not until the voices began to speak to him. There were 100 pegs on the keyholder, each numbered between 400 and 499. For more than a decade now, he would find someone who lived in one of those numbers, whether a house number, office number, apartment number, or a couple of times, bunk number. He had to kill them in whatever way he desired, thanks for that little freedom, voices, and take a key from them. When, when all the pegs are filled... You may rest, the voices had said, and continued to say. It varied how long it took him to find a target. He never went to the same town in a given year, never to the same building. He tried to find nasty, intoxicated, criminal, ugly people. He would hate to have to kill a nice old teacher, or a mother, or a gay businessman or something. Luckily, children rarely had keys so they were off-limits. Mason had made his mistakes before, like the time he poisoned an inmate at Longview Penitentiary, or the two men he had stabbed and found no keys on them, not to mention the pimp with the electronic key fob. The voices in his head told him that just wasn't good enough, and he was off to find another of that number. He was a serial killer, one the papers had called the doorman, in the handful of cases they'd connected together. But once, he had wanted to be so many other things. A veterinarian, a record shop owner, a missionary to Africa, someone who trained birds to talk, someone who transferred old 8mm and VHS movies to digital, a children's book illustrator. Of course, the voices put a stop to that. 
Back when he watched television, Mason had seen pieces on serial killers. They were terrible people. He didn't think he was like that, and the voices often spoke comfort to him afterward. He wasn't insane. He had never been caught, had never even had a close call. The voices were real. They provided guidance, investment advice, lottery numbers, told him where to find valuables, and every once in a while, they gave him addresses where he could find folks who truly deserved to die. That was always nice. Once the keyholder was filled, he'd be done, and the end was in sight. So now, on to number 422. He'd found that the higher the number, the harder it was to find options. He drove to a city, Collingsford in this case, found a building, and watched it. Luckily, a lot of apartment buildings had the numbering restart on each level, so it was just number 22 on the fourth floor. But sure enough, it said 422 on the door. He sat in his car until sundown. A voice told him to look up, and he saw a woman come up the stairs and walk to her apartment. She unlocked 422 and went inside, turning on the lights. He didn't like that the target was a woman, but he waited seven minutes, then got moving. He climbed the stairs to the fourth floor, approaching her door. Go now, the voices commanded, and he went. He preferred to strike in stairwells or dark parking lots, or follow them as they let themselves into their homes. But Mason had become proficient at picking locks. It took him less than thirty seconds to open a typical door, barring a chain or deadbolt. But this door was not locked. He stepped into the apartment, quietly closing the door behind him. He owned a pair of night-vision goggles he'd purchased at Toys R Us, but hadn't brought them. It was not dark inside. He walked through the foyer and into the living room. A woman sat in a chair by the wall, looking calm, looking unafraid. She was young, not unattractive, and a part of Mason despaired that she had to die. Then he saw her wall. There was a key holder there, from the Paradise Hotel, it appeared, room numbers 400 to 499. It had about a dozen keys of different shapes and sizes on it. What? he began. But he made the connection before he could finish. The keys she had collected were on the pegs his own holder was missing. The woman stood up. Hello. He slowly turned. She held something in her hand. It was an apartment key. It's mine, she said. Her voice was sweet. I made a copy. 422. He took it from her, his hand briefly touching hers. It was warm. He stumbled to the couch realizing his killing days were done, and began to weep. She gave him a smile and quietly sat down next to him. Not done, Mason, the voices spoke to him. We never said you'd be done, but now you may relax 
before the next phase begins. Okay, he sighed. All right, he heard her sigh next to him. The end. Okay, so that was it. That was the key collector. This one is relatively unchanged from how I sent it into the contest. Like I said, it hasn't been very long ago. I did do another draft right before I recorded it for this, just because there were a couple of little parts that I, I thought could be expanded and one little part that I didn't like. But it's almost exactly the same story that lost that contest. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. the the contest thing. I, I've said it before and you'll hear me say it again anytime I present a story that I wrote for a contest I'll say you know this was a story that I would not have written if it weren't for the prompt and so that's always good with contests although I think if you sat a real writer down and said okay which would you which is a better story something that's been percolating in your mind that you just can't wait to put down on paper or something that comes to you when you're forced to come up with something based on a prompt, forced to come up with something inorganic to your brain or to your imagination or to your muse. And maybe they would say that, you know, both are, are, are equal, but no, I'd definitely say that something that I've wanted to write for years or, you know, that, oh, I'd been turning this around in my head for months and then finally I got to sit down and write it, that's going to produce something more memorable and more well, more indicative of me, of, of who I am and all that stuff. Um, not that there's nothing of me in this story. I mean, you get a character. I, I feel bad for the main character. He, he's a killer. He's a serial killer. He's even got a nickname. And, uh, you know, the, the, the media has given him. But he's a, a, a very unhappy, lonely, miserable character. You know, th this is actually a pretty nice little story. I'm not saying that it's good, but I just, I like that this guy has been doing this thing reluctantly or he's a reluctant serial killer, <laughs> but he's super lonely. And I, and if I didn't play up the loneliness enough, maybe that's something I should stress. Let's see. The problem is that a lot of the characters that I write are lonely. And I wonder where that comes from. He, he does this thing and he goes and... I think originally I had seen him follow the girl up the stairs and all that and he saw her and he remarked that she was attractive and then he's like, shame that the voices are making me kill her. Uh, and then there's the twist, you know, when you go in that he doesn't have to kill her. She's the missing piece, almost literally, that he's needed. Uh, and, and you know, then the story ends. But, oh wow, just the, the idea that he goes there and, and finds what he needed, finds what he has been missing. That's sweet to me. And this is actually kind of a sweet story because there's, there's murder, uh, you know, along the edges of the story. We could easily have started with him killing someone and putting the key onto the, the hook. In fact, we could have started with him putting a key on the hook and, and flashed back to who the victim was and how it, it, he went about it and all that stuff. But 
this one kind of sidesteps all of the murder and all of the darkness and just sort of focuses on the happy ending, which, you know, granted, yeah, okay, she hears the voices too, and now they're going to have to move on to, like, phase two or kill more people together or whatever, but to, to not be alone in something is so much nicer. I, it makes me want to expand this story into something bigger. But, you know, I'm probably not going to. I, I have so many ideas, so many stories that I've abandoned, so many things that would make a good story if I just put the sweat into it, the, the, imagine, the brain sweat, if you will. I don't know. I've complained, and you, you've heard me complain on, on That Gets My Goat or on The Dune Steve, that, you know, a lot of times these short stories are too short. That there's no such thing as a completely satisfying thousand-word story. And I, I still believe that. But we've all, I mean, if you're a reader, and I barely am, but if you're a reader, you've probably read a short story by a, a writer that he or she later expanded into a novel or a series of novels in some people's case. For example, uh, Marshall Latham presented this story by uh, Ken Scholes on the Journey Into podcast that Scholes expanded not only into a novel but into five novels. And a lot of times you'll see these short stories expanded into novels and yeah, it's great how they've taken this bedrock and made you know a whole building out of it or a whole neighborhood out of it or whatever. But the short story was just concise and tight and satisfying uh, in a way that the novel is not. And, you know, that's just my opinion. I, I'm sure you could point to two or three and short stories that are vastly inferior to the novel. For example, Ender's Game by uh, Orson Scott Card is a fine short story, but it's a, a fantastic novel. And, you know, at the same time, I remember... There was a short story by Card called Lost Boys that was just wonderful. And he expanded it into a novel, and the novel isn't as good as the short story. So, okay, you know, either way, the door swings both ways, Ray. And so, uh, I, this is a short one. It didn't take me long to, to record, it didn't take me long to edit, and it didn't take me long to write. You know, I, I, you've heard me share some longer pieces on the show and that's cool and I will continue to do that but sometimes it's nice to have just a one and done you know what I mean an episode that's like that so that's what's uh, presented today uh, yeah let me just end with this um, you know a lot of times life is really confusing and, and pointless you're here and you don't know what, what you're here for. You'll go down a few roads and discover only later that they were the wrong roads. Or that they were dead ends. Or they were, uh, not cul-de-sacs, what do they call it? The damn roundabout things. That nobody around here knows how to uh, maneuver. It seems to me that if you found somebody and everything connected and, and, and the pieces fit, that it would suddenly make life if not easier, a little bit more directed, a little bit more 
to the point. You know, knowing where you need to go, where, what you need to do, what you, what you ought to be doing and all that stuff. That seems really nice. And, and, and it's not really the point of this story. The point of the story was, you know, he thought he was going to have to kill this person. And it turns out now he's got a partner. Boy, that, that does make me really want to expand it and find out what happens next. Maybe I will. I don't write a lot of sequels to my work. But um, yeah, it just seems in real life if uh, you'll hear like the poets say, you know, you you meet somebody and you feel like you've known them your whole life or you feel like, you know, you've been just spinning your wheels until you met this person and now you can actually go on your journey. And, you know, that might be poetic nonsense. It might be stuff to sell pop songs, but uh, it seems like a really nice idea. You know what I mean? You know, you, you meet somebody and it's like, wow, now life can begin. Now, that's not happened to me. That's never going to happen to me. But it's a really attractive romantic notion. And so uh, I'll leave you with that. And if you found somebody like that, that's cool. Um, I'm, I'm imagining. So uh, thank you for joining me for this brief Rish Outcast. And I will be back again soon. Probably would want a little bit longer. As you can hear from the car, I didn't have to go quite so far today. That's what, part of why I started it early. But thank you for listening. And, uh, shoot, what is it? The big likes? He likes something about dreams don't come true. You make them true. You have to make them true. Wait. Dreams don't just come true. You have to make them come true. Maybe it was, dreams don't just come true, they have to be made true. No. Shoot. Okay, I'll think about it. See you next time. The Rish Outcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution, no derivatives, 3.0 license. The music in today's episode was presented by Kevin McLeod of the website incompetech.com. Now, McLeod, let's see what kind of swordsman you've become.